Salvabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. In this episode, we're going over the mountain, a South African expression for heading over the Cape Fold belt that separates areas like Swartland and Stellenbosch from the interior. In the old days, this was a tough wagon journey, and as we'll hear, the interior really only opened up for commercial agriculture after railroads and tunnels made the area more accessible. The valley as a whole is named for the Breda River, which runs through it. We're going to zero in on the southeastern third of that valley, an area called Robertson. Here, the mountains, rivers, soils, and an opening toward the southern tip of Africa create some exciting opportunities for wine growing that more and more people are catching on to. The soils in particular are notable because there are substantial calcareous areas, that is to say, limestone soils, which are otherwise extremely rare in the Western Cape. Robertson is home to many different wineries, big and small. Let's meet a few and hear what brought them to the valley. My name is Rianko van Rooyen, I'm the chief winemaker at Robertson Winery, and we are in the beautiful town of Robertson, about an hour and a half out of Cape Town, if you head northeast, situated between two beautiful mountain ranges with a beautiful river flowing through the valley. Interesting enough, the Breda River has Afrikaans for a wide river, but what's wide for us is not necessarily wide for people in the States that are used to the Mississippi and etc. So yeah, we are quite water scarce, but we make the best of it. Robertson Town is actually named after a pastor, Sir William Robertson. We have a wine called Chapel Red, which is an entry-level red wine and named after a chapel that he built. One thing that has stayed constant for the past 100 years has been the wine industry. Robertson Winery was established in 1941 when a couple of farmers got together and decided to make their own winery and establish a corporation. In the early 1980s, it was decided that they're going to start bottling and selling under their own label called Robertson Winery. Whereas previously all the wine was sold back in the day to some of the large players, especially the KWV. Needless to say, that brought along its own tumultuous period. But eventually through uh, tenacity and keeping going on and thanks to the customer support and the, the tenacity of management, we've actually grown to become the largest brand in South Africa. So we're well known throughout the country and I'd like to think internationally. Robertson is actually quite unique. We actually split off from Stellenbosch, Paul, the Swartland, when you go through a mountain range with the, uh, the Toysdorf Tunnel. So it's a tunnel that's a couple of kilometers long, and then suddenly in a whole different world, we have slightly less rainfall, but we do have slightly less pest control needed. We are slightly more shut off from the rest of the Cape, the Cape Town area as such. But we are prone to much higher snowfall levels, slightly colder temperatures, but also a bit of a drier climate. This year, uh, we're very fortunate with the uh, second cold, very wet winter. So all the dams are full. Uh, the boreholes have been replenished. There are lots of mountain streams coming down. So we're very thankful, and we're hoping for a, a good harvest coming up in 2022. I'm Peter DeVette. I'm the fifth-generation owner of Excelsior Estate in the Robertson area. I run the business. My father's still involved, but it is a typical South African family business. Being fifth generation, my ancestors started in the mid-1850s. They bought some land in the Robertson area. Over time, the farm's been divided up amongst family members, but we are fortunate to have the largest piece of the original farm. The farm has been involved in many other enterprises besides wine. One of the first major enterprises was ostrich feathers. We bred ostriches for the fashion market, 
and it was a very lucrative industry. But just to give you a brief idea of how much money they made in the industry, at the height of it in early 1900s, one feather, and that was the prime feather at the tip of the wing, fetched about six pounds on the market. Now, to put that into perspective, for six pounds, you could go from Cape Town Harbour in South Africa all the way to Southampton, UK on a ship. So you could roughly equate it to a 12-hour overnight flight in today's terms. So it was a very lucrative industry, but it was a speculation bubble, like many other things throughout history, tulips, Bitcoin, etc. When the industry collapsed in 1914, due to two major factors, obviously the Great War, First World War just started and people needed other priorities. But the other reason was by that stage, the Model T Ford was very popular. And women needed more streamlined hats because the feathers were mainly used in hats. And it was the end of an era and never came back. Post-World War One, we got heavily involved into breeding thoroughbred racehorses. And we also expanded fruit farming and the wine side. From the very early days, we did make wine, mainly fortified wines. Two reasons for that was in the old days, fortified wines were a lot more fashionable. And they could travel very well. South Africa was a very isolated economy and relied on the export market. So we had to export wines and they had to be able to travel well in a cost. So that is why they were popular. Also, I think tastes were a lot sweeter in those days than they are today. We started planting more modern varietals in the 1960s and we built our own winery in 1981, a modern winery with cooling, etc. We had an old winery on the farm, but that was geared for fortified wine production. Obviously, South Africa had sanctions that you all know about. But in the late 1980s, my father and my uncle realized that the industry was going to change. The South African political landscape was changing rapidly, and we had to become very export-orientated. We went and looked around in the foreign markets and see what had changed in 30 years since we last exported wine. And obviously, people were drinking modern dry wines, and in particular, red wines. So we started planting Cabernet Sauvignon in the late 1980s, and it was a big risk in those days because this region was not known for producing red wines. And First Vintage came along, and the wine seemed very good. We couldn't find any buyers, so we started looking in the export markets, and some Dutch buyers were interested, but they said, look, South Africa is still not possible to sell, but we understand that in a few years' time you'll be able to sell. So they said, please plant more Cabernet, and we'll buy it from you. So we took that advice and planted more. And then in 1992, we were actually able to start shipping wines to the Netherlands and very soon after that to the U.S. market. And Cabernet Sauvignon has become the mainstay of our business. It's more than 50% of our plantings and it's the most drunk South African red wine in the U.S. market. So that's Excelsior in a nutshell. There was agriculture in Robertson from the early 1700s, but that was on a very subsistence scale. Robertson is a very dry region. It's only up against the mountain where there was a very limited permanent water. So when you're talking micro scales, a few hectares here and then with a lot of sheep grazing. Also, there were no roads. There was no railway. So the nearest um, railhead was in Worcester, 60 kilometers or 40 miles north of us. So you had to walk your sheep out to be able to get it to the market. A little bit about siphon history because it's very important to our context. In the early 1880s, they discovered diamonds in Kimberley. And very soon it was producing 80% of the world's diamonds. And a decade later, so about 1890, they discovered gold on the Witwatersrand, which is now Johannesburg. So that was the sort of push to industrialize South Africa. And overnight, a railway system was developed. And we got the Cape Central line in the early 1890s. 
And very soon after that, the farmers ourselves got together and developed a water infrastructure. So basically, the real agriculture development started in the early 1890s. So we had been farming for 30, 40 years, but on a very limited scale. So large-scale commercial agriculture is from about the 1890s. My name is Jeanette Bruvel, and I'm uh, the fifth generation at Springfield Estate Winery. My brother and myself are working together, and the next generation is already also in line to join us. Springfield Estate has come into fruition only in 1996. That was after Nelson Mandela did the most important thing for wine that could have been happening in South Africa, and that is when he walked free out of jail in 1994. He became a democracy, and we could then start making our own wine, selling our own wine, and most importantly, exporting the wine under the South African label. So we've been making wine for five generations here already, but only in 1996 did we start to export our wines to the international market. So we went from predominantly bulk wine to being a winery that sells wine on the international market in bottle only. Springfield wasn't the first one to make the transition. De Vetsoff and Bon Courage were the first ones, and Sanfrit also, that made the transition. So we were about two or three years after them, started producing wine under our own label and exporting it under our own label. We are 80 miles east of Cape Town and 60 miles directly north of the southern tip of Africa called Cape Gullis. Many tourists think that the Cape of Good Hope is actually with the interaction where the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean meets, but it's not really true. It's at the Cape of Gullis where the two oceans actually meet. On the east coast, the warm current sticks out further into the Indian Ocean. The cold Benguela current coming up from the south hugs the coast. So in Robertson, we've got a climate that's not Mediterranean. It is almost arid and dry. And we have this beautiful plus point that we have hot days but very cold nights. So our difference between temperatures where we live is about 20 degrees between day temperature and night temperature. And then between where we grow the cab and where we grow the Sauvignon, is about 30 meters in altitude difference. And that makes a huge difference in the night temperature. Robertson is in a valley between two mountain ranges that are exactly parallel to each other and they run in a northwest-southeast direction. This has a great impact on the climate because even though we're quite far from the coast inland, the prevailing wind in the Western Cape in summer is known as the southeaster. So the mountain range is directly aligned with the southeaster, which then acts as a funnel. As the line warms up during the summer day, obviously hot air rises, and cool, moist winds from the coast blow in. Typically at Excelsior, they pick up on the dot 3 o'clock in the afternoon, every day in summer. And you experience a drastic 10-degree temperature drop within an hour. So a typical day in summer would be 30 degrees Celsius, which is what, about 86 Fahrenheit. And then it will drop down to 15 degrees at night, which is 60 Fahrenheit. So it's a nice diurnal drop. With this moist air from the coast, we often get a bit of cloud buildup. So it's it's not completely dissimilar to some California. They get more fog, we get more cloud. So it's a slight difference, but it's that big diurnal day-night change. Another interesting thing about our climate is it's very dry due to the mountains. It rains 
as the cold fronts in winter reach land that rains up against the mountain with orographic rain and we're in the rain shadow. So we seem to miss the rain. So we only get about 11 inches of rain a year, which is obviously not enough to dry land farm. So we need to irrigate. We feel that's a great advantage because you can actually manipulate the plant and you give it just enough water so the plant can ripen a crop without having dilute flavors. And also with a dry climate, we have very low disease pressure. Our grapes are typically very healthy, and most years we don't do any spraying except for the sulfur dusting, which is an organic practice. It's strange how quickly the cold can come through. From about two in the afternoon, maybe three, it definitely gets cooler. And I've even had days where the rain just starts coming down, which is actually quite weird doing a full day or two of harvest in the rain. Luckily, then we don't do get much grapes in, but we're fortunate to have hot daytime temperatures, but still at night you have to sleep beneath a blanket. Just keeps the grapes fresh. We do have quite a large drop, which allows the acid levels to stay crisp, and it gives us fruit-forward wines, and they combine that with the limestone soils, lower pHs, freshness, fullness at ripe harvesting levels. It's actually quite a ideal place to make wine. The vineyards in the Robertson area, especially our vineyards at Robertson Winery, are quite spread out throughout the whole valley. We do have some vineyards closer to the river, which has obviously got deeper, more sandy soils. Some places have got more clay. We've got other vineyards which are up more against the mountainsides. Those get very little water and are irrigated mostly through some boreholes or mountain springs. And then we obviously have the majority of our vineyards which are grown in certain areas which are very high in limestone. But our vineyards are pretty much spread all over. Some of the vineyards are dry land. That's more forced than choice because there's only so much water coming through the Breda River. Like with all family things, you learn through growing up on the land, working in the land, toiling the soil, but learning about what grows where best is by living the land. I remember in 1974, televisions became available in South Africa. My father said he's not going to buy a television set, so he bought my grandmother one. Black and white one. The only program we could see was World at War. And we had to ride with our little bicycles down to her house. And the elevation between where we lived and where she lived was about 20 meters, 30 meters. And after watching World at War, finishing at 7 o'clock at night, we had to cycle the little way up to our house, about 4 kilometers. And... Leaving her house, it was about eight or nine degrees colder than arriving here where we used to live. And that brought us from a very young age to the perspective that where does colder varieties work better? So depending on the altitude, the elevation, and what type of soil we have, that gives us, through the generations that we've been farming here, the experience to still try and better ourselves and to plant the grapes that we think fits best into that area. So why we've planted different varietals at Springfield is we've learned to work with the soil, we've learned to work with the pH of the grapes and of the soil, and we've learned to work with almost making the grape think that it's colder where it grows than where it does. So by giving irrigation at night time when it's colder. We would irrigate that area to cool down the soil even more. We also believe in huge canopies so that we can shield the grapes from the searing sun. 
our daytime temperatures can go up to 34, 35 degrees. But that same night, we come down to 10, 11, or 12 degrees. And for that reason, we've also decided through this experience that you build up, we've made a huge leap for the last 15 years. We've been harvesting all our grapes at night, starting at 2 o'clock in the morning. And then by about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, we stop. So we harness that cold of the night to also bring in a better quality of grape and a cooler climate grape than what we would have harvested during the day. Average rainfall is 240 millimetres per year and our average evaporation is 1.5 metres. So it's a dry, arid area, but where we have water, it's beautiful. It's like an oasis. And that is a plus point. Many people frown upon the irrigational system. A lot of people believe that dry land can render better grapes. Now with global change in climate, all the more better that you can give a little bit of water and not just rely on phenolic ripening on a dry piece of land. Also, the plus point is that the water never lands on the leaves. So we have no sprays, no idiom, no downy mildew sprays. And that's the reason why we can ferment 80% from Springfield's grapes with natural yeast, because we do not have to use insecticides or pesticides. We don't rely on the rain to feed our plants. We can irrigate and feed the plant at the roots. And with the southeaster blowing every afternoon, we have beautiful, airy vineyards that doesn't harbour any of the pests that one encumbers so often. Robertson is quite unique in the South African viticultural landscape because we're the only region with large deposits of limestone. Now, in Robertson, not all soils are limestone. We do have other soil types. Along the rivers, we've got alluvial soils, which are quite sandy, and they're good for Sauvignon and other fruit crops. And then on the mountainsides, we've got shale-based soils, which do well, typically red varieties. But then mainly we've got limestone-based soils. So obviously, there must have been some marine deposits millions of years ago. And we get these limestone soils, which are very well drained, high pH, typically pHs of seven and a half, that kind of thing. And we find that Chardonnay does beautifully in those kind of soils. I mentioned earlier that we used to breed thoroughbred racehorses, and there's a strong tie in between that and viticulture. When you have grass on limestone soils, the grass has more calcium. It picks it up, obviously, from the soil, but also high pH soils, which limestone soils give you, gives grass with a higher protein content. So it's ideal for raising stock, especially racehorses, because you get a great bone structure in the horse, but also more muscle because of all the protein it's getting. So it's a better quality horse. So that's the link between the two. We no longer raise horses. We sold the last of the thoroughbreds in 2000 and now focus solely on wine. Well, it might be a fantastic story or it might be backed by good archaeological findings. The calcare that you find down at the most southern point of Africa is calcare originating from the seabed, like you find in Sancerre and those places. The calcare that you find in Robertson 
originates from giant termites. I wasn't around those many millions of years ago, but I believe they were quite big. And if you fly over Robertson, you see these concentric circles about 30 to 40 meters in diameter. And those were the termite nests. And that calcified and that forms the basis of the calcare that we have here in the Robertson area. So our soil differs greatly at Springfield. Next to the Breeder River, which is the main lifeline of our area, the big river flowing through the basin. We've got loamy alluvial soils that originates from decomposed sandstone washed down by the river. Then in the midsection of the farm, we have a little bit of clay interspersed with serious calcareous soils that you need to break the soil and mix the soil very good to get a good dispersion of your terroir. And then a small pocket of the farm has got about 80% quartzite. Soil-wise, we got vineyards of different areas, but we make the best of it. We plant Sauvignon Blanc on our higher soils, Chardonnay, where it's chalky, and some of our higher-yielding vineyards close to the river, which goes into our normal entry-level wines. We have a new block of Chardonnay being planted at the moment, where viticulture showed us, and it literally looks like white patches of soil at the, how high the limestone quantity is. So we, we're very happy and excited with what's going to happen there. You do get certain areas which do have, for example, uh, some of the Chardonnays in the Achterklip Wachter Ward, where our flash of Chardonnay is high concentration of limestone soils. You tend to get uh, lower pHs at higher sugar levels. So you can go for riper fruits and still get that crispness in the wine. But because some of our blends are quite large volume blends, for example, our Chardonnay blend is 2.4 million litres, Chenin Blanc 2 million litres, Carbonet 1.7 million litres, we can use all the wine in one water and not even get close to producing one blend. So what we do in Robertson Winery is we try to be proudly Robertson. Like you'll be a family and each of your children will have a different trait, but you'll all be, for example, Smiths. So what we're trying to be is we're trying to make the best we can make in Robertson. And obviously, ideal wine, your whole is bigger than the sum of your parts when it comes to blending. And that's what we see. We use all these different wards, but you try and be proudly Robertson. And that's one of the things that we do with Chardonnay and with our Shiraz and the Constitution Road range is our provenance is Robertson. We don't want to be anything else. We want to be Robertson. Our focus is not making three barrels of a certain wards wines. There are definitely people that focus on ward specific wines. That's good for them. We need that focus because they actually elevate the fruit and show some of the other sellers where the great parcels of vineyards are. So we try to attempt that in a way with our single vineyard wines, which are taken up in Constitution Road, but we don't label them as a certain ward. We keep the wine of origin Robertson because that's something we're trying to put out into the wine world is the Robertson quality. Now that we've got the lay of the land, let's take a look into the cellar. While there's some common themes when it comes to grape varieties and some other points, each winery has their own approach. Springfield Estate uses natural yeast in most of our fermentation, in all our Chardonnays, in all our reds, because we believe we can make better wine by using natural yeast and not by inoculating them. We have the ideal terroir, the ideal growing situations on our estate to be able to not use any spray or insecticides or pesticides. So we would be very stupid not to use what nature is already giving us. 
And we believe that making wine is like children growing up. There's no right and no wrong. But for Springfield Estate, the natural way works better than the high-intervention wines that many people do. For us, we can use less sulfur on it because we don't ferment with sulfur. The course must go its course. We obviously do have the years where we are not successful in being able to ferment our wines dry with the natural yeast and then we lose that block of vineyard or we lose that tank of wine. But the minimal intervention is a way that we've chosen, not just because we are looking for clients, we big drinkers of our own wine and we like that way. We like the fact that so many different yeasts each leaves a footprint on the wine instead of adding sulfur killing all the natural yeasts and then only fermenting with one strain of yeast that you buy from a lab. So once again, it's a way that we've been practicing through trial and error. It's the way that we prefer our wines. We are not geeky, funky orange wine producers. We are still like the classic styles of wine that we do, but there's definitely more roundness, more finesse than what we would have done with calculated yeast. Also, when you do natural fermented wines, there's also quite a, a lot more glycerol on your wine naturally. So we've used that technique where you actually ferment naturally to bring down your alcohol because South Africa is a warm country in our area also. So you would have a potential alcohol of 15, but by fermenting with natural yeast, you end up with an alcohol of 13 or 13 and a half. Because with natural yeast, you use about 16 grams of sugar to end up with 1% of alcohol. In, in inoculated yeast, you will only use 15 grams of sugar to get 1% of alcohol. And that byproduct glycerol, which also forms, gives that beautiful softness and mouthfeel that we are very proud of in our wines. We have two different Sauvignon Blancs. The first one is called Life from Stone. And as the name indicates, that grows on 80% quartzite rock. So you have 80% rock, 20% soil. So beautifully flinty, mineralic, a little bit of saline composition in there. Opposed to its sister block of Sauvignon Blanc called Special Cuvée, which is grown 40 meters in altitude lower on the alluvial soils of the Breda River. Beautiful that every six or seven years when we have a major flood, then this vineyard is completely covered underwater and that brings this decomposed alluvial soil to the area. Opposed to the flintiness of the Life from stone, the special cuvee is more tropical fruit. The acidity is much the same, but much richer mouthfeel. Then wild yeast Chardonnay, fermented in almost 100-year-old underground cement tanks, unwooded and done with natural yeast. And then the Method Ancien Chardonnay, the beautiful mature old vine Chardonnay that's fermented in big barrels, 500 litre barrels. And that is obviously then in wood for a year. We do not do any butternage. We don't do any stirring of the lees. And then after a year, it's taken out of the barrel and bottled without filtering or fining. 
It's only our Sauvignons and the Albarino and Miss Lucy that I find. The rest, again, vegan compatible, no finding, no filtration either. Then after a beautiful trip to Uruguay, we fell in love with Albarino, so we've got a beautiful Albarino on the market called Springfield Estate Albarino. Miss Lucy, the name of a fish, the best fish in the South African waters, and it's a blend of Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Semillon. Beautiful wine with food. The Sauvignon goes with a certain type of food. Pinot Gris picks up on a little bit of spicy food, and the Semillon is there to give the backbone to the grapes. We have a Springfield Estate Pinot Noir, Burgundian style, and a whole berry Cabernet Sauvignon, where we leave the grapes uncrushed, and with their own weight, they crush themselves with the juice leeches out, and then the fermentation starts with natural yeast. So whole berry Cabernet Sauvignon for 12 months on first, second, and third full barriques, 300 liters. And then our real great, great wine is called The Work of Time, which is a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, and Petit Verdot. We keep the wines for two years in barrel and four years in bottle before release. And then the Springfield Method Ancien Cabernet Sauvignon is probably the wine that we love a little bit more than the rest. It's produced on the same rocky outcrop of 80% quartz that the Life from Stone originates from. Also two years in new barrels and then four to five years in bottle before we release that. The aging of the wine is important and wine age as well when it is in balance. And that is what we pride ourselves in is that our wines are in balance. So we've got good acidity to give the longevity there. It's got good fruit and the wines are made naturally. So whatever could have gone wrong with the wine would have gone wrong during the fermentation time. So if it doesn't end up in the vinegar barrel in the cellar on the other farm, then the wine is sound and stable. It needs very little sulfur before bottling. We bottle our wines only with 40 parts per million total sulfur because it's already a healthy wine. The acidity is good, the pH is good, and that is the reason why the wines last very long. The last provine that we could attend before COVID hit, we tasted a 1992 special cuvee Sauvignon Blanc, and it was beautifully fresh, beautifully mature, and such a joy to drink. And Sauvignon Blanc is not associated with good aging potentials. So the mainstay of the wines that we produce at Excelsior is the Cabernet Sauvignon. We've got some blending varietals for that. We use quite a bit of Petit Verdot in that wine, depending on the vintage. I'm a big fan of it. I think it adds a lot, especially in your weaker Cabernet years. It really plumps it up. We use sometimes a little bit of Merlot as well in the wine. Cabernet Sauvignon Robertson, there are not that many producers who specialize in it. We do. We find we get nice ripe flavors at a lower alcohol than many other regions in South Africa. The past three vintages have been spot on. 14% alcohol. Whereas in many regions to avoid the herbaceous side of Cabernet, people will typically have a 147 to 15 alcohol. 
And I think consumers are generally looking for lower alcohols these days. It's definitely a trend. But you can't just pick early and expect lower alcohol wine that the wine's going to end up green. And green is, I know there have been times where they've been fashionable in the market, but in the long term, it's not as sustainable. People like ripe flavors. I think it's something that as a region, we need to build on it because it's a great advantage. You can get lower alcohols without having to manipulate things in the winery. In the U.S. market, we also produce a Syrah. I think it's a trickier variety for our area because we produce more elegant styles. Often with a New World Syrah or Shiraz, often consumers are expecting a big, full-blooded wine, whereas ours is more medium-bodied and elegant. And on the white side, the mainstay is Chardonnay. Robertson is blessed with fantastic limestone-based soils, and there's a natural affinity with Chardonnay we find we get really bright citrusy characters, almost a minerally salty character, as well as great elegance. And we feel that style is best made in a very lightly wooded style as opposed to 100% new barrique. We also produce a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc. It's also a trickier variety. Robinson's, it's not a hot climate. I'll describe it as a warm climate, whereas typically Sauvignon will prefer a very cool climate. And South Africa, those typically are found on the coast, whereas we are about 60 miles inland. But we've got some high altitude plantings that we utilize, which gives it a cooler climate aspect to the wine. And then with clever picking dates, we can have some early harvest and some late harvest to get a nice combination of that sort of slightly herbaceous side, but still nice tropical fruit characters. We try to be the gateway wine for everybody. So we start off with the easy drinking, natural sweet range, going on to a typical cultivar style wines, which goes through from Carbonate, Merlot to Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. And then we go over to our flagship wines, which are just two wines, which is Chardonnay and Shiraz, which are some of our better vineyards. The Constitution Road wines have two wines on the range. It's a Chardonnay and a Shiraz. For the Chardonnay, from where the cellar is, it's about 17 kilometers, extremely high limestone content. We tend to harvest at a slightly higher sugar level, about 25, 25 and a half. And then about halfway through fermentation, we actually transfer to Brand new French oak barrels and about 5% American oak. Half the wine goes to new oak. The other half goes to second full barrels. And then fermentation completes. We leave it on its fine leaves. We stir it up once a month just to get that mouthfeel. And the last two or three years, we've actually gone into a slightly different direction with the style. It's not that the wine was ever over oak, but we're going for more freshness, more lemon zest, limey, citrus, but full creaminess without going too much butterscotch, too much oakiness. So it's a... Easy, drinkable style. I always say if you want to enjoy a wine, drink a full bottle. And with some of these flagship wines, you really can't. But with the Constitution Road, the only thing that stops you from drinking a second one might be the price. So it's a really good wine, really drinkable. The same for the Shiraz. We go for a plush style, big tannins, full, also high alcohol, not 14 and a half, 15, close to 14. But it's a very dark wine. It's a really delicious wine. Barrel matured, about 30% American oak, the rest French oak. 100% 100% new oak. We try to go for something new world in style, but old world in restraint, having the backbone and the structure. So it's really something unique. Both volumes are quite limited at about 30,000 liters each and quite widely available in North America, especially Canada and, and select pockets of the States. As we've seen, Robertson is home to a range of producers, large and small, and a range of different wine grapes. But there are a few things they agree upon. You've got a good vibe between all the industries. Town knows we all need each other. We're quite agriculturally based, but all the different industries we know need each other. We work together and we have a good time doing it. And 
We share knowledge. Just this morning, I was at a different seller chasing their Sauvignon Blancs, and I was really impressed. So thinking about maybe using some of their wine, they're thinking of using a different component of ours then. So I think we reach out to each other, we help each other, because no man's an island. You have to work together to actually move forward. And we're getting more and more behind that, working together as a region. And I think it's important for the Robertson brand, not necessarily Robertson Winery, but the Robertson Winery District brand to, to work together and actually put out the best we can. I would say the flagship variety is definitely Chardonnay. There are different styles of Chardonnays throughout the valley, whether it's the Chardonnay used from the base wine production, some of the base wine or Method Cup to seek producers are situated in the valley, whether you go to Chardonnay as an easy drinking wine that you or your wife can go pick up the store for a Tuesday night barbecue. It's us we've, that we produce it. If you go for flagship wine in the Chardonnay, it's also something you find in the valley. We really over-deliver in quality and especially at the price point you can pick it up. It doesn't matter who Chardonnay you go to, any wine seller in the valley, you'll be pleasantly surprised. You might have some that are more fruit-forward, some that are more oak-dominated, some which are better balanced, some which are fresher, some which are riper, but all of the wines are good quality and you'll find anything you'd like to Chardonnay-wise in this valley. Brand to, to work together and actually put out the best we can. We always like to get the thoughts of a U.S. sommelier when we're doing our podcast, so this time I turned to Ray Scholes down in Miami. Ray is the sommelier at Michael's Genuine and also the owner of Royal Vines. Ray, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to be here. Good to hear your voice and good to talk to you. Yeah, it's good to reconnect. How's South Africa doing in Miami? Is this a category that you were paying a lot of attention to or seeing around? I think you are a huge influence on me as far as the category is concerned. But honestly, I don't see a whole lot of South Africa in our market. And I think that for me going into Michael's Genuine and being able to rewrite this program, one of the things that was at the top of my list was I want to make sure that we showcase South Africa. There's some amazing wines and I don't think anyone's doing a great job of showcasing those wines. So I wanted to make sure that once we reopen the restaurant, because we're going through renovations currently, that on that list, you would see a significant amount of South African wines that are absolutely fantastic. I've been a fan of the region since, honestly, since my inception into the industry. Actually, one of my AHA wines comes from South Africa. The wine that I was bitten by came from South Africa. That was really my first exposure, and I thought the wines were beautiful. What wine was that? Detour Infusion 5, and then also Glenelli. The Lady May is something that you can definitely look forward to seeing on our list. I poured it for my chef and his partner, and they absolutely loved it. It was like, oh my gosh, make sure this is on the list. And I was like, don't worry about it. I've already taken <laughs> care of it. There's a couple of wines that I can say like I've turned to in South Africa. And I was just like, oh my gosh, these wines are fantastic. And I just don't think that they get the credit or the spotlight on people's list down here. So... That's right. something to look forward to once Michael's reopens. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, definitely. And you've also been seeking out some of the Black-owned South African brands as well, right? Yes, absolutely. So Aslina is probably one of my favorite brands that I've come across. I know there's a couple more. I'm not sure if I've had a chance to really taste through, but Aslina, I had a chance to meet her a few years back. And I think this was before the explosion of exposure, if you will, for Black-owned brands. I think maybe 2017, 2018, and 
had such an amazing like personality and mm-hmm. just like warmth about her. And I fell in love with the wines too. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Now, among the South African wines you were looking at, was Robertson a region or a category that was on your radar? Honestly, I can't say there was a specific region that you know I had my mind on. Obviously, being that my first exposure was Stellenbosch, like Stellenbosch was definitely on the radar. And I had heard about Robertson. I have read about Robertson, but haven't really had the chance to taste a lot of wines from Robertson. So when I said I'm going to send you some Robertson wines, what were you expecting in terms of grapes or style or anything? So one, when you said you're going to send me Robertson wines, I started jumping like a little girl in a candy store. I was extremely excited and I knew that the wines were going to be absolutely amazing because you were sending them to me. But as far as like grape variety, I did expect to see a Pinotage and then everything else was, I don't know what I'm going to get. Maybe I might get Chenin, maybe I might get a Chard, maybe a Soft Blanc. And at that point, I was just really excited to taste wines from Robertson. So diving in with those, we sent you three very different wines, I think. Robertson is heavily associated with Chardonnay because it actually has limestone soils, one of the only spots in South Africa to have those. And we sent you a producer that specializes in Chardonnay. This is the Bonvalon Vineyard from de Wetzhoff. What would you think of this? This Chardonnay is fantastic. It was super aromatic and just jumped out of the glass and gave me like this really very pretty, like prickly nose. So it was like flirty. And I also thought that it was laser focused. It was almost Chablis. The acid was just super on point and there's no makeup. Well, what I consider makeup would be like oak or malolactic fermentation, but it's still round. It doesn't have that super creaminess that you'll see from the California Chardonnay, but then also it wasn't quite burgundy either. And I felt like it landed in the middle and gave the best of both worlds. I did feel like there was a little bit of tropical notes on the nose as well as on the palate, but not overbearing. This is super serious Chardonnay that did not come to play around. Yeah. And this is entirely unoaked. And the Devetsov really pioneered this style with the Bonvalon in South Africa. This is something that I'm actually actively looking for to put on the list because I think this is a great segue into people that are like, oh, no, I don't drink Chardonnay. This is something that I can say, listen, you have to taste this. If you don't like it, don't worry. I have a straw in the back of the restaurant. I'll put a straw in it and I'll drink it myself. But I absolutely adore this wine. I think it's so beautiful, very well made, and a very serious contender in the world of wine. This is exactly what you want in a fine wine. With Chardonnay being a little bit of a specialty for the region because of those soils, probably no surprise that bubbly plays a role there. And pretty much all the major players making bubbly source at least some of their grapes from Robertson. The one we sent you, Tanzanite, this is a Melanie Vandermeer's wine. And she used to make traditional methods of sparkling wine from one of the biggest companies in South Africa and now has gone out on her own. And she turned to Robertson. So how's the Tanzanite brute showing today? The Tanzanite is so gorgeous. One, the mousse is really nice and creamy. And then also it has this really nice green and yellow pear thing going on. And obviously there's some beautiful green apples and yellow apples there as well. So when I first put my nose in glass, I was like, ooh. And then... It was really nice on the nose with this toasted breadcrumbs. And you know how with lots of traditional sparkling wines, people are like, oh, I get this bready, like sourdough, toasty kind of thing. This was a sparkling wine that I could give to anyone, just someone just like their very first wine. And they would be able to pick up those notes. And for me, that's been hard in the beginning of my career to pick up those 
toasty, bready notes in the champagne or any sparkling wine that was made in the traditional method. So for me, when I put my nose in this, I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have had this in the beginning of my career when I was trying to nail down sparkling wines and really trying to assess those properly. This would be one of those wines I would like, listen, if you're having problem discerning your nose and your palate with, you know, champagne or, or sparkling wine from anywhere, this is what I would put in front of them and say, smell this. And now you can take this and moving forward, you're going to know exactly what a wine that's been on the leaves for some time is going to smell like. I think that's a great point about the autolytic notes. They're so unique to traditional method sparkling wines. And you also then have the factor that the bubbles, I think, are a real distraction for people when they first come to really start tasting sparkling wines and differentiating among them, that to really have a clear example for that is really valuable. Yeah. And that's exactly what I think this is. I think if anyone's teaching, this is a wine that you need to seek out and put in front of your students. And that way they can go ahead and have a really clear example of what those autolytic notes would be. Mm -hmm. We also, of course, had to send you some red wine. And as you've already hinted, we sent you a Pinotage, which is not something that Robertson is necessarily associated with. But as you've seen, there are some great vineyards there. This is the Aaron Sig Batch 7 Pinotage. How is this showing today? I have to say this was actually my favorite out of the entire lineup. And I was thoroughly surprised. I think South Africa in general gets a bad rap for Pinotage. And we obviously understand why. But I looked at the bottle and said, I'm definitely excited to try this. Because I'm always looking for a really good Pinotage so I can help change the perception of what Pinotage has come to. And this is the wine to do that with. It was so pretty. It was so pretty. I started giving it to other people to taste. I took it to work with me and was like, guys, you got to try this. Try this. What do you think? What do you think? Oh, my gosh, this is so good. What is this? Pinotage. What? I gave it to my beverage director, Amanda Fraga. And she was like, so what is this? And I was just like, just taste it. And she was like, no, what is it? I'm like, no, just taste yeah. it. So she tasted it. She was like, oh, my gosh, I really like this. This is really good. And I was like, it's Pinotage. And I unveil it. It's so delicious. You can't beat it. The nose was beautiful. And I think the palate is what really did it for me. Super well balanced. Great acid. And it had this roundness that I haven't really seen in Pinotage before. Mm -hmm. And just... Overall, just wow. Great. I'm glad to hear that you'll be showing off some South African wines on the new list. And hopefully we'll eventually be able to have not just a South Africa section, but a Stellenbosch and a Robertson and Parle and Swartland and really show off the different regions because it is such a varied landscape down there. Absolutely. We're going to have to work on it. I'm super excited because I feel like a lot of people don't have an actual section that's dedicated to South Africa. You'll see Chablis, you'll see Burgundy, you'll see all these wine regions. But I think where a lot of people are lacking is definitely South Africa. So mm. looking forward to pioneering a little bit of South Africa into the mix and trying to showcase those. I hope you enjoyed this look at Robertson and its wines. You can find more resources and links to the producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. Today we talked about how closely Chardonnay and Robertson are tied to one another, 
but we barely brush the surface of where a good portion of that Chardonnay is going. Method Cap Classique. To hear more about how Robertson's grapes are driving the growth of premium traditional method sparkling wine in South Africa, please go back and check out our very first episode, devoted exclusively to Method Cap Classique. And in Episode 9, you can put Robertson Chardonnay in context alongside Chardonnay from other regions, such as Elgin, Hemelinarda, and Stellenbosch. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. Or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. In our final episode of 2021, we're going to visit another region with a tie to Cap Classique, Franschhoek. It takes its name from the French Huguenots who settled there in the late 17th century. In Old Dutch, Franschhoek actually means French Corner. One of the Wineland's top tourist destinations, it's not resting on its laurels. And today, Franschhoek is home to a mix of classic estates and leading boutique wineries. I hope you'll join us. (laughs) 